I want to welcome you to the show. We have the legendary, one of the greatest directors of all time is directed. This I movie. wouldn't go that far. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so many of the greats, The Howling, Piranha, Gremlins, The Burbs, the one and only master of horror, Joe Dante. Joe Dante, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Max. Thanks. <laughs> I want to welcome you to the show, man. It's such an honor. How were your screenings? I saw that you did a screening last night for the Howling. Uh, the, 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 the new Howling uh, 4K is running at the uh, locally here at the New Art Theater, which is a venerable uh, revival house that, that somehow didn't close it with all the other ones. And uh, they, they did a preview last night, and then they're running it for a week uh, on Friday. And I, I, did, I did a little intro. And I was surprised to find a lot of people there. It was 10 o'clock at night on a weekday. And everybody was masked up. And uh, I thought, yeah, you know. I never, never had an audience watch this picture with wearing masks during the entire time. <laughs> it's kind of a rare Halloween tradition. People have to wear masks all year round now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the Howling is just one of the all-time greats. But I want to get into your early backstory of being born in Morristown and, and growing up in Livingston because this is where you grew up in New Jersey and your father was a golf pro. Yes, my father was a golf pro, and uh, he uh, commuted from Livingston to um, the Rockaway River Country Club, uh, which was quite a bit further away. We eventually moved out of Livingston to be closer to his work, uh, and um, living, this was in the 50s, mid-50s, and uh, there was one um, little basic town square uh, that had a movie theater uh, called The Colony, and they had uh, kitty matinees every Saturday. The first boy and first girl got in for free. So everybody started lining up at 10. Um, and it was only a quarter to get in. But if you saved your quarter, uh, you could put it in the vending machine and get popcorn or candy or, or some of the other stuff. Uh, and um, a lot of the times, if the movies were like grown-up movies uh, and, and uh, not suitable for kids, you'd spend most of the time uh, traversing the aisles looking for dropped coins so that you could get more candy. Uh, but I spent many a happy hour there, and, and I... I I really saw some of them, you know, some, some of my major um, film going uh, experiences took place in the mid 50s because it was a great era for kids. Who, uh, kids could see almost anything. Uh, and um, and there was, of course, it was, you know, the Atomic Fear era and the, the, all, all the uh, Atomic Monster movies were coming out, Giant Ants and, and uh, it was, uh, it was great. I, I, the problem was that I would go home and have nightmares. And then my parents would say, why do you see these movies if you, they give you nightmares? And I, I, did, I, could, I didn't have an answer. I just couldn't, I couldn't live without them. I needed them. Your first movie that you saw, I believe, was Snow White. It was kind of a re-release that you saw. That was the first film, I believe, that you recall that you saw in the theaters. Yeah, I think uh, most people in my generation, their first movie that they're parents or uncles or aunts or grandmothers or whoever was the kid was dumped on uh would take the take the movies would be a disney uh, cartoon and you know they used to reissue them every seven years uh, which was very smart uh because they would you know succeeding generations would get to show the movies to their to their kids and uh that was certainly mo that one uh, this is the early 50s so i would say it was snow white and then probably the next one was peter pan which was new <laughs> so i saw that one it was new that's how old I am. Them, it came from outer space, Creature from the Black Lagoon. All those classics were really some films that inspired you. But you mentioned before that you used to get nightmares from watching these films. If there's one that you can recall that lingered with you the most throughout your viewing history, what horror film just scared you the most? Well, I was particularly susceptible to giant insects. I don't know why. Um, but uh, I think it was partly because uh, in, in, in the movie Them, they made sounds that were very like the crickets in my backyard. Um, and then there was another picture called Tarantula, which was about a, a giant spider. But at one point of its gestation, it's about uh, two or three feet tall and lives under, it could, it could live under your bed. And uh, that was the, the, the big fear was if you, if you got, put your feet out of your bed onto the floor, what if the giant tarantula grabbed you? And uh, uh, it, it's you know these are things that, that remain with you um, and I, I've, I've always liked those movies and I did a, an affectionate uh, send up of them in a movie called Matinee that I did which has a sort of a phony um, uh, 50s style monster movie in the middle of it. <laughs> Does it ever bother you today that today's audiences from the younger generations don't enjoy going to the movies because I think this affects the filmmaking abilities in t today's day and age the passion just isn't there. 
Well, unfortunately, almost nobody has uh, yeah. enjoyed going to the movies in the past two years because uh, it's been dangerous. And yeah. um, the, the reason that most people in my generation and generations before fell in love with the movies was because of the communal experience of seeing them in a darkened theater with an audience. And um, horror movies and comedies and any kind of movie that involves audience uh, participation or reaction is, is, is greatly diminished by watching, being watched on television or on your computer. And uh, so the ex experience is just not the same. And uh, I, for one, miss it. That was why last night it was so heartening to see a whole lot of people lined up for a, an old movie of mine and, and, and that hasn't been available to see in theaters for years. Yeah, that's that's amazing that there was such a turnout because The Howling is a classic. But you wanted to be a cartoonist originally and able were eventually able to work for the, with the Looney Tunes. Yeah, I was I, I I was a big Disney fan too, and and I would particularly the comic books, the uh, Carl Barks uh, Disney and Uncle Scrooge comic books. They were they were my my bible in a way, and um, and of course the the animated cartoons, which were which I, I I came to realize was a completely different matter than the than the, the comic books, uh, almost different worlds. Um, and yeah, I, I wanted to be a cartoonist, and I, I did lots of cartoons, and, and uh, then I, and I eventually did storyboards in a very cartoon-like fashion, much like I make the movies. Um, and I, was, I went to art school in Philadelphia College of Art at the time. It was called now called the University of the Arts. And um, I took a, uh, my first uh, year. I took the, the staple things, and they said, "Well, what do you want to, you know, uh, be?" And I said, well, "I want to be a cartoonist." And they said, well, cartooning is an art, so you have to find something else. And I thought that was a kind of a lowbrow view. Uh, so I took the film, the film course, uh, and this was in the, you know, the early 60s when there were like, you know, 20 students and two 16 millimeter cameras. And we all had to make our movie. And of course, everybody, like, <laughs> like it always happens, they like left their homework to the very end. And then it was like fighting tooth and nail to get the get the camera for long enough to shoot your film and then to get in the editing room to cut it and all that stuff. And it, it um, and the experience of course is obviously completely outdated now when uh, you think about when kids come to me and say, so how did you get your start making movies? And it's like, well, not only did we use equipment uh, that is obsolete, uh, but uh, when I finally got to Hollywood, I made movies on equipment that's now obsolete, uh, including film. Which is now unfortunately mostly obsolete. Uh, so it's 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 I've seen a lot of changes. Uh, things have really um, uh, taken a, 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 a technological turn from uh, what I was what was available to students when I was younger, and and also the influences, of course, are different. And, and you know, it, it's 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 hard for people for young people who have you know grown up with you know, uh, TV and radio and internet and fax machines and all those kind of things that to remember an era that where there wasn't any of that. And uh, there were only three or four TV stations and you, you know, you, whatever they ran is what you saw. Uh, and then everybody would talk about it at school on Monday, you know, so that's how shows like The Twilight Zone and Thriller and, 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 and got this big audience of basically, you know, younger people. Um, and, and so they didn't, the Nielsen ratings were not that great because they didn't have that much adult viewership, but they had a lot of younger people and, um, and they, they really made those shows in outer limits, those kind of things into, um, iconic shows. Uh, and, but now that's, that's, that's much less likely to happen because we don't have, um, that kind of commonality in the things that we watch. We, uh, we, we have these endless streaming channels and all these different networks that come and go. And uh, there's no shared viewing experience. There's not everybody sits down and watches Ed Sullivan on, on Sunday night at eight o'clock because Elvis is on. You know, that's those days are those days are gone. And I'm not saying they should be brought back. I'm just I just think it's it's a, we've sort of lost something uh, in a, a, the great variety of stuff that's now available. And of course, the, much of the quality is is terrific. But uh, but it isn't widely seen by the uh, people at the same time. And, uh, and so there isn't, um, it doesn't make that kind of cultural impact that it did in the 50s and 60s. It kills me to watch the transformation scene in The Howling and then looking at horror films today where it's just, you would never get that anymore, that transformation scene, because that was real effects. Everything's CGI now. 
Well, CGI is a great tool. I mean, it's, you know, they, they invented computers for a reason. And, and uh, I, I've seen some remarkable work done on CGI. And I think most people don't realize how much CGI they're watching in any given movie. Any, and it, what looked like an, a mundane, normal scene that you would think was actually photographed with a camera. You know, m many of the components, or maybe even all of it, was assembled in the computer. And it's very convincing. Uh, and it gives you a lot more leeway. I mean, I... I, I I cringe with envy every time I see drone shots in, in, in TV shows, you know, where they, even these are fairly low budget shows and they've got these, you know, great aerial shots showing all this stuff. And, you know, when, when I started to get an aerial shot, you had to have a crane and to get a crane, you had to spend a lot of money. So you could only afford, you had to figure out how many, how many shots can I afford to shoot from that angle. And now, of course, if you could shoot all movie from a drone. Um, so, I mean, it, it is, it is the best of times in terms of that kind of leeway, but, um, you know, I think that we did have to think differently and, and, and visually at least, uh, and because we didn't have as many, um, opportunities available to us. When we think of you, we think of Roger Corman. How did you get the opportunity to start working with Roger Corman? I had been a fan of Roger Corman's movies uh, because I saw them initially when I, when I was a kid. And uh, then, of course, he did the Edgar Allan Poe series with Vincent Price, which was extremely popular and was, uh, has, has ruined many a book report for, for kids who saw the movies and then went and wrote a book report based on what they saw in the movie, which was, of course, not the same thing. <laughs> um, but uh, it's, it still amazes me that in that era, uh, that the, the Poe pictures, which were period pictures, and the Hammer films, which were also period pictures, were extremely popular with young people. And, the, you know, people wearing waistcoats and, you know, hoop skirts and all that. And, and it, was, it didn't bother us. We thought it was just, it was just fine. But now, you know, uh, you make a movie today that's set, uh, you know, any time before five years ago, and people say, well, it's, it's an old movie. It's a period picture. Look at those, look what they're wearing. Um, so it's kind of amazing that that, that period of classical Kind of horror films was, uh, was was as popular as it was for a long as long as it was what does it mean to you to be called a master of horror oh it's just a phrase i mean it, my friend mick garris uh who's also a horror film director has uh, and a bunch of friends and he and i um would get together for dinner whenever there were enough people in town and uh i think guillermo del toro christened it the masters of horror dinner and that ultimately led Mick to create a TV series called Masters of Horror, in which he asked a whole lot of us uh, veterans to come in and do episodes for. And, and so I think the name has stuck. And so now it's kind of a bromide that, you know, we're all, everybody who makes horror film is a master of horror. <laughs> it's true. We got we to gotta hold your legend such as yourself to a stature that you are a master of horror because of what you did for film and bringing films such as Piranha and Howling and even the Gremlins, which it does have its violent side, but it's also for kids. You did that at such a level in the eighties and it's carried on in traditions. And this is what filmmakers today look up to. Yes. I think I helped give us stranger things. Yes. <laughs> I think you did too. <laughs> it's funny that you bring that up, of course, but the Howling 28 days to shoot this film, you were, you just left Jaws three people zero because you thought that was going to fall apart. That was probably the no. I didn't think it was going to fall apart. It was falling apart. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> and, and uh, I was lucky to jump onto a, a subject that I enjoyed because you know it's it's not, it's not that easy to make movies, even if you love making them. Uh, and and it's it's best to find things that you feel you can personally contribute to and that means something to you, so you're not just working for some guide and you know, as a work for hire and doing the work and leaving. And, you know, if, if you can make it your own, then uh, you can put your personality into it. And so you, you, when people see your movies, they can recognize, you know, they can recognize a Hitchcock from a Ford or a Hawks or, you know, uh, whatever, because of the, the, the style of filmmaking and often the choice of, of subject, sometimes the cast. Um, and that's what makes continuing returns possible to, to people. You know, most people, when they see movies, they think, when they're kids, they figure the actors make up the stuff and they may be not even actors and maybe it's all real. And when you finally see enough movies, you start to recognize that there are certain similarities in different people's work. And, um, and you find the ones that you like. And then you, you also, when you get deep in the weeds, you find people that, whose work you don't enjoy. And so you don't watch that as much. Uh, but uh, it, it's sort of the auteur theory. Uh, which, you know, has um, been roundly derided in many circles, but um, because the, the director doesn't necessarily have to be the 
major creative force in a film. It can be the producer, it could be the writer, um, but uh, it's usually a combination of people who are really trying to make the same film, trying to, to, to make a statement. And, and even, even within the confines of what might seem to be a silly film on, on the surface, uh, probably if you deep, dig down a little deeper, you'll find that there's actually a message in there and there's a point of view. You were heavily inspired by The Wolfman. Kurt Seod Mack, his screenplay for The Wolfman is that you admired The Wolfbane and the things that he brought with the folklore of The Wolfman. You were inspired by this and even kind of incorporated this into The Howling and paying homage. You tend to pay homage to a lot of movies within your movies. Well, I, I like movies and, and, yeah. and The Howling was a, a movie that was, it was my chance to make a werewolf movie. I probably figured it'd be the only chance I ever got to make a werewolf movie. And I, I wanted to nod to the classics of the past and sort of maybe set it in a framework that people could think, well, maybe this is, this is where this genre is going. And so the, 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 the unique thing about the movie at the time was that the characters in the movie are as smart as the audience about werewolves because they are, it acknowledges the existence of pop culture. And, the, and instead of going to the fusty professor to ask what's like lycanthropy, uh, they already know. They watch, they're watching The Wolfman on TV. And, and all those, all those uh, the rules and stuff are, uh, are given to them the way that they really, uh, in real life, the audience would receive it. But of course, we, we wanted to change some things because, you know, if you follow the rules, the, the werewolf can only turn at a full moon. And so we had to uh, um, modify the rules for our purposes so that we could have werewolves that were, you know, we didn't have to <laughs> cut and do dissolves in between every scene. Like, oh, another couple of weeks has passed and now we're, he's turning into a werewolf again. Uh, so we created this bookstore scene with Dick Miller where he explains that he, he, he takes the piss out of a lot of the old uh, shibboleths about about werewolves and stuff. And because, and, and, and I, I saw this earlier done in um, a Hammer film called Horror of Dracula where they they didn't really have a lot of money to make to do have uh, have their werewolf have their vampire turn into a, a bat or a, or a wolf. And so they they do they just derided it in, 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 in the research. They said, well, no, it's not true. You know, <laughs> that's not, that's, that's the legend, but that's not true. Well, it's not true in our movie because we don't have enough money. Uh, and, and you have to be able to bend these things to your will in order to, you know, make them work for you. <laughs> you brought up Dick Miller before. What did it mean to you to hear, because I've seen in Howling documentaries and makings that that was his favorite scene in any film he did at that point was his scene. Uh, that's what he used to tell me. And, yeah. you know, he did it in one day and uh, it was just a half a day, really. Uh, and he, it was just a great confluence of the right actor with the right dialogue. And uh, it, it, Dick would ever, always take every part, whether it was large or small, and make it his own. But uh, he was one of, those, one of those actors who could carry a movie if he had to and was not above doing a three-line bit in a, in a movie. And that's like one of the ways that actors manage to um, sustain their careers. Mm -hmm. I loved their working with Dick. Yes, rest in peace, one of the all-time greats, of course. You had to promote The Howling as a slasher because werewolf movies weren't popular at the time, so you brought the shock value because people going into this may not have known that this was a, a werewolf movie. No, that was all on purpose. We, we didn't... Uh, yeah. the, the, the werewolf pictures that had come out in the ensuing you know, five-year period had, been, had not done very well and had, had been a little lackluster, and I think that the bloom was off the rose and people were thinking, well, you know, this is kind of old-fashioned and it's movies for the late late show do i really want to see another werewolf movie and so the studio smartly sold it as a slasher movie and there was no mention of werewolfery in the ads or uh even i think in the trailer uh they they just um the idea was to try to get people interested in the story as a contemporary story not a story with villagers and pitchforks and and uh, you know make it bring it up to date and and john sales who, who uh, did the final version of the script you know, added a whole lot of um, uh, sort of more hip elements, like uh, making fun of the self-help movement and the est uh, thing, which is was very popular at the time, and now nobody remembers what it was. But uh, there was a guy named Werner Erhard who was um, proselytizing that if you if you just followed his guidance, that you would be happy in your life, and it involved you know doing things like having long meetings and not going to the bathroom, <laughs> things that don't play today. <laughs> learning about the howling too you believe that one of the dream sequences ended up in the alligator well john was writing both pictures at the same time because you know at that time the producers neither producer had any money and so they would bring them out and they would, we would we would we would share 
with another picture of the cost of bringing John out. And then he would, in his motel room, he would be ensconced and he'd be typing uh, a script and you'd go to see him and knock on the door and he'd say, who is it? And, and he'd realize, okay, it's the Howling guy. So then you'd hear the paper being ripped out of the typewriter and he would put in some other paper because he was working on Alligator. And, uh, and uh, both pictures have dream sequences in them. <laughs> I, was, I thought maybe we got confused and, and each one got the other's dream sequence. When working with Dee Wallace, because you love working with her and, and she's one of the greatest actresses, of course, and you had, there were times that you had to talk with her because she couldn't get out of her intense scenes. You had to get her into the right mind frame and to perform it in the scenes that weren't as serious. Well, Dee was playing probably the most complex character that I had ever had in a movie. And, uh, and also she was um, a very intense actress. And uh, she, would, she would, in order to get into the mood for a scene, uh, she would really sort of intensify her emotions. And um, uh, if, if you had her, if she, if she was supposed to be hysterical in a scene, then you don't want to do that in the morning because then she would be hard for her to let that go for the rest of the day. So it was a it was a it was a, a learning experience for both of us. Certainly more for me probably, but um, she she was a terrific actress and, and and became a good friend. And I've worked with her since then. And and for for no reason of her own, she's ended up being um, semi typed uh, because she ended up doing uh, a number more of these pictures and, in which uh, and and she's she's particularly good in, in Peter Jackson's The Frighteners, which is not a very well-known movie, but um, is, I think, one of his best. With Michael J. Fox, that's another yeah. great film that you bring up. Robert Burns, I think bringing him on really set the, the tone to this movie, especially for The Cabin with the animal skins, because Robert Burns is the production designer for the set for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Bob had, um, he was quite a character, and when you visited his house, he actually had um, his house decorated very much like the... Uh, the sets in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre with bones hanging around, and then, and the mother character was sort of sitting in a chair, um, and he was he was the perfect guy for our picture, um, and uh, he's he's in the movie at one point. He's he he's, he he walks past her in the porno theater, um, and uh, he, he he tried directing. I don't think he particularly enjoyed it, um, but he was a. Uh, a real boon to the to the show. I mean, he was uh, I, one of the creepiest things in the movie is the art direction. When did you know that Bob Ricardo was going to be the perfect role for this? When Eddie Bob Quest? Ricardo was the only actor who would put up with sitting in a makeup chair for 24 hours. Rob <laughs> 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 uh, Bottin, who did the who did the effects, was a perfectionist and is still, I'm sure. Uh, and uh, he had, uh, on, on a budget of, a, of nothing, um, he really created some remarkable uh, effects, but they took time. And uh, Bob was an was and is an extremely patient actor. And there was one day when we uh, were waiting for Bob to come down from the makeup room uh, in his makeup, it was one of the transformation scenes. And um, it was lunchtime and he didn't come down and then it was dinner time and he didn't come down. And finally we had to actually uh, send everybody home because we're going to go into overtime. We hadn't shot anything. Uh, and um, he had to stay in the makeup the whole night in order for us to be able to shoot it in the morning. Uh, but uh, Bob is also a very close friend and, um, and he's, he is terrific in the movie. And, and uh, he's had a very versatile career. And of course, most people know him as... Uh, the holographic doctor in Star Trek. Yes. You wanted to cut the transformation scene down. Now looking back on that, do you feel as though that... No, I would still do it. Was. You'd I, still I cut would, it down? The, 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 way that the, the way that the producers sold the movie to the exhibitors was that uh, they, they made a little showreel and that had the transformation scene on it. And the exhibitors were all wowed and they said, this is great and, and, and we're going to book your movie. And so the company came back and said, don't touch that scene <laughs> because the exhibitors like it. And, and it was a rough cut. It wasn't really the whole, it was, we, we hadn't finessed it. Uh, and uh, we always, I always felt that it was, it was overly long. Uh, and uh, it, 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 but you know, that's, that's the way it's been all these years and nobody's complaining, so fine. To me, it's the greatest werewolf transformation. It is because it's so long. And I know that I have heard you say in documentaries that when, when you'd hear, I think you had someone come into the room 
And I think as soon as they came in the room during that scene, they said, why isn't she running? Which is well, it was because there were some we, we tried out we tried the, the, the rough cut out on some kids who were yeah. uh, in an adjoining uh, room uh, in a casting session for something else. And we said, let's bring the kids in and see what they think of this scene. And they when they they were suitably impressed. But at one point, the kids said, why don't she run away? And uh, I, I don't know, because she doesn't Because <laughs> we've got more effects to show. That's why she doesn't. <laughs> I think it works too because it shows that she's really in fear in that moment. That's how I observe it. No, no, it's it's it, it works fine, and also the music helps, and it's very well photographed, and the, you know, it, it's 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 fine. But it just it, I, I in every movie you do, when you look at it again, you say, oh, I could have done this different, I could have done that different, but you know, it's it's graven in stone, and that's it. Yes, I'm not one of those guys who goes back like George Lucas and <laughs> completely changes his movie. Yeah, I mean, THX eleven thirty eight is was a, was a terrific movie. And then he went back and he supposedly improved it by adding a ton of CGI to it. And it's kind of ruined the purity of what was originally a, a, a feature version of his student film. Yeah, right. A hundred percent. It's always interesting to look back on the trends in history. The smiley face, which you use in the movie, is the, the trend with Eddie Quist. That was a trend. Yeah, the smiley face was... Uh, not 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 very beloved by me. I just thought it was cheesy. But uh, it, it, everywhere you went, there were smiley faces, and they and they made smiley face stickers. And uh, I think that it's probably still ubiquitous. It probably still around. But uh, we decided to make it uh, a symbol of evil. <laughs> so every time people would see the smiley face, that would mean that Eddie Quist is around, or the the, the people from the colony are are coming around and they're they're checking everything out. You mentioned the colony. I was going to ask this earlier, but you started to explain on what we were talking about earlier. But the colony was the movie theater that you went to. Is this? That's right. That's what. That's what inspired the colony. That's why, we, that's why we call it the colony. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. We connect the points. We can't forget that the howling. One of the best trailers to me in horror with the glass breaking. You love that effect, and that's why you kept well, it. I, I love the effect uh, because it was and it was done by Peter Coran, a friend of mine, who uh, was, <laughs> you know, he did it for the trailer as part of his uh, his job. And when we saw that, we said, "Well, this is too good to just use a trailer. Let's make the let's do the titles around it." I don't think Peter ever got paid anymore for that, so I think he was a little disgruntled. <laughs> <laughs> but more people saw the picture than the trailer, so. <laughs> Avgo Embassy changes hands, Norman Lear buys this production company, and you're not working right now. So eventually, you, you get a script in the mail, which is an opportunity, which is Gremlins. Steven Spielberg sent it to you in the mail. Uh, he did, and I, I was convinced it had gone to the wrong address, because uh, we had this, you know, when we were working for Corman, we were in this sort of rat hole uh, office on El Centro Avenue in Hollywood, and across from a bowling alley. And uh, I, I, I didn't think anybody, certainly Spielberg, knew who I was. Because <laughs> you got to remember, these, these films, because of the kind of pictures they were, they, they, sometimes they didn't even bother reviewing them. And, and so they, uh, they were kind of uh, non-movies in a way. They weren't really, we never considered ourselves making movies like, like real movie makers made. We were just sort of working as some sort of subculture. Uh, and this script appeared, and it turned out that he had seen uh, Piranha, uh, and he'd seen The Howling. In fact, he hired Dee Wallace to do E.T. off seeing her in The Howling. So um, uh, it turned out to be a, uh, a, a script by Chris Columbus, which he wrote as a spec script, which is a, a, a script that a, a writer writes never really intending it to be produced, but just to show people what he can do. And, uh, and Stephen saw it and for, for whatever reason gravitated to it. And the difference in the script and the final film was uh, one of the differences was that the hero was 13 years old uh, in the script. So uh, when I did my storyboards, I, it was like they were all gremlins versus little kids. Uh, and then during the um, when, it, when it became apparent that Stephen was not going to be able to make this picture for $1.98 by shooting it in Oregon, non-union, um, because it was the effects were going to be too complicated. Uh, he went to Warner Brothers, and they they agreed to take it on. But then once it was a studio picture, they said, "Well, you know, we don't want it's not a movie for little kids. We want to have to have a uh, at least a late teenage uh, level hero." So so we we upped the ages of, of the characters. You almost had a cameo with the telephone booth scene in the first Gremlins, but I think you took advantage in Gremlins too with your cameos. <laughs> 
Do I have a cameo in Gremlins too? Oh yeah, I've yeah, you producer, TV, of, TV director. Yeah, yes, Grandpa TV Fred. Director. Yeah, that's right. I cut, I cut most of myself out, <laughs> as I often do when I do that. Oh, but Kate's monologue. I was reading online that this actually almost didn't make it into the film because it was so controversial. No, the, even the, the this. We walked out of the first screening of the dailies of the scene where Kate talks about her father getting stuck in the chimney. And uh, the editor turned to me and said, you know, that's, that's never going to be in the picture. And I, I sort of took that as a challenge uh, because to me, it encapsulated the entire tone of the movie. It was something terrible that happened to this character. And, and it, but it was also ridiculous what happened to this character. And so you're torn between feeling bad for her and, and wanting to laugh because it's so silly. And I thought, well, this is a perfect metaphor for this movie. Uh, and uh, then we had this preview that was like amazing. I mean, the best preview I've ever had. And, you know, uh, directors are lucky to have even one preview that's as good as this. And everybody was suddenly jazzed. This movie that was so problematic was now going to be, oh, it's going to be a big hit. The only thing we have to do is we have to cut out that scene where she talks about her father in the chimney. That's, we cut that out and we'll have a big hit. And um, I managed to get Stephen to convince them to leave it in, uh, which allowed me to make fun of it. And, Gremlins 2. <laughs> That's right. It's become one of the most memorable scenes for the Gremlins. Everyone remembers that scene. Howie Mandel, which people are still amazed to this day, is the voice of Gizmo. When did you know that he was the perfect voice for Boy. this famous character? Howie had been doing uh, a, a baby voice as part of his routine. And uh, it was really cute and, and funny because Howie was funny. Uh, and we, you know, we thought of many different w ways to, to handle it. Because on the set, you know, we, nobody did anything. Nobody said anything. We just, ah, ah, ah. the puppeteers made noises. But, you know, we had to fill it in later. Uh, and uh, we didn't audition anybody. We just asked Howie if he wanted to do it. And, um, and he said yes. And uh, he is, he and Gizmo are probably the main reasons why that picture is still so popular. The dog on set thought, he was convinced that Gizmo was real, and he's he thought he thought that all the puppets were real, and uh, he was the. I mean, it's it's a slight to say that he's the greatest actor I ever worked with because I've you know, worked with so many human beings, but uh, it, he was a phenomenal dog, and he was so expressive, and we got so many great cuts of him being perplexed and looking and where he at exactly where you want him to look when he would look, and um, he really thought that Gizmo was real, and, and I think. The fact that he didn't smell right was fascinating to the dog, and, and it's one of the reasons he was continued this continued interest in, in what was frankly not a very expressive <laughs> puppet. Um, and so we it was it was a match made in heaven. I mean, and also having a real animal with our puppet made the puppet look better, made it look more like it was real. Made people were more willing to suspend their disbelief about it. You designed Gizmo after Steven Spielberg's dog because he told you he wanted Gizmo. Well, we gave it. it we, we we had a design, but he, we were getting a lot of turndowns on on the various versions of the design. And and when we finally made it the color of his fox cocker spaniel, he finally approved it. And, and because we were finally getting to a point where you know we gotta gotta start manufacturing these. We gotta make these. We're gonna be making the movie. Uh, and that was when he came up with his bombshell idea, which was uh, about three weeks before we started shooting that Gizmo should not turn into Stripe the Bad Gremlin uh, after you know 20 minutes, but he should stick around the whole movie and be the hero's pal. And this was like horror for us because we this, this little puppet was so small and so inexpressive and had so many buckets of bolts and stuff in it that, um, and it couldn't walk, it had to be carried. Uh, so we said, well, how are we gonna possibly make this thing expressive enough to carry a movie? It's now a character. Um, so we built a big one. We built a really big giant gizmo, which was pretty frightening in person, but uh, with a giant head with a you know wingspan of a seven forty seven, and uh, and he but he could do ex uh, expressions, and if you shot them close expressions and cut them in, it looked like the small puppet was having any expressions, and so uh, we managed to dodge that bullet. But it was but it, it, as I said, it was in the end. I think uh, the appeal of that uh, character is really the reason why this wasn't you know, a Critters or a Munchies movie, but a Gremlins movie. We have to give you so much credit because the work that you had to do for these films, the puppets were so difficult to deal with that it was easier to keep Gizmo in the backpack because you couldn't really get him to move much or even walk. 
for the first Gremlins, that is. No, for the first Gremlins, we figured out we'll have to have them uh, carry around in the backpack, yeah. uh, which was fine. We made a big backpack for the for the giant gizmo, and we you know we got some good stuff out of it. But then by the time we made Gremlins two, which was five years later, uh, the technology had improved to the point where we could actually have Gizmo move around and dance and jump up and down and all these things that we could never even imagine doing on the first picture. You didn't want to do the second one. Well, I was burned out. I mean, yeah. I had done the first one. And it, was, it, was, it was not an easy movie to make because no. the studio didn't really believe in it. They were doing it as a favor for Spielberg. And, uh, and they, when they saw the movie, they didn't much like it. And it was only after they had the preview that they decided they might be able to merchandise it and make money. Uh, so I was just, the idea of spending more time shooting Gremlin tests uh, for another you know half a year was just not appealing to me. So I said, no, I'm, I'm not, the, I, I, I don't want to do this. I'm going to go off and do the other stuff. And so they tried while I was in, in the interim, they tried several times to get scripts written for a, a, a sequel to Gremlins, but because they had never really understood what was working about the first movie, it never came to anything. So they finally came back to us and said, you know, if you, if you'll do the sequel to this movie, we'll let you do anything you want. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't turn that down. No. How was your experience of shooting in Manhattan for this film? Because I've seen the behind the scenes. There was police there. It looked out of control at points. Well, on the street. It was, it, it, it's a little deceptive because we were only in Manhattan for like a couple of days. I think, okay. I think the, the picture started in Manhattan and uh, we, we shot all the exteriors that we could and all the rest of it was built on uh, the Warner Brothers. Christopher Lee bringing him along. I'm sure you were stoked because I'm, I'm sure that you grew up a, a Hammer horror film and seen I was, him. and in fact, yeah. uh, it was uh, suggested to me that Christopher Lee play the uh, part that Patrick McNee played in The Howling. And uh, as much as I loved Christopher Lee, I said we can't do that because everybody will know right away that this guy is the bad guy, and uh, it'll kill the movie. And and Patrick McNee was known for the Avengers, and he was very avuncular and likable, and it was sort of like the, you know that. If this character is going to turn, he has to have some place to turn from. Uh, and so I didn't get to work with Christopher until, um, until Grumman's too. But that was a lot of fun. I had a great time with him. And, um, and he was, you know, I had heard all stories about how he was aloof and not much fun. But I found him to be hilarious and, and a lot of fun. Uh, and we, we tried to team up again for a couple of other things. We had a Sweeney Todd uh, version with Vanessa Redgrave that we almost got made. Wow. Uh, but um, I... Uh, I, I, we became quite quite close. I really, really liked him. I think one of his greatest performances is in The Curse of Frankenstein. What is? What do you think is his greatest performance in the Hammer films? Well, he, The Curse of Frankenstein is pretty darn good because he, the, the spastic nature that he was doing uh, was, I think, pretty effective. And it was it's a, obviously a hard, hard role to fill. I mean, the, the Karloff shoes are rather large. But um, uh, I, I, my... I don't know. I, I think he's awfully good in The Three Musketeers. And um, he's also, uh, he made this picture called Jinnah, which is about the guy who uh, founded Pakistan. Uh, it's a, where he plays this character. And, um, and he's terrific in that. I mean, he was just, he's a really good actor. I can't remember him being bad in anything. No, yeah. I, it, well, my generation would know him for Star Wars, Count Dooku, of course, but when you go back into your history, he's legendary for the Hammer yeah. horror films, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Gremlins 2, were you surprised about how much praise that this movie got being a sequel? Um, no, I, I, it, was, it, was, it was so different than the first movie that some people were sort of taken aback because it wasn't really a horror movie. It was sort of a spoof. And, and uh, uh, I think a lot of some people were confused by it. I know the studio was confused by it. But they stood by me and they said, no, we said you'd let, we'd let you do it and so you can do it, but we don't get it. Um, and uh, and it, it didn't, it, they, they changed the release date and it kind of screwed up the, the distribution of the picture and it didn't make as much money as we had hoped it would. But then, like, uh, like many movies from that period, um, it found its audience on home video. Mm-hmm. And now uh, a, a huge number of movies that were problematic box office movies in the 80s uh, and 90s um, are now considered classics uh, by people who don't realize, don't remember uh, what the initial reception was for some of these pictures. You know, The Thing, John Carpenter's The Thing was a, a disaster. I mean, it, yeah. got, it, got, it, got, it got no no reviews, bad reviews, and, yeah. and, uh, and, and no business. And, uh, and now it's like as this benchmark. What's some advice that you would give to a filmmaker in, in creating a great sequel? Because 
oftentimes sequels don't live up to the originals, but there are cases where we have here Gremlins 2 has a huge well, following. We have also Godfather 2. You know, That's right, have, Godfather 2. Bride of Frankenstein. We have T2. I mean, the trick is uh, to, you, you don't want to repeat the first movie. I mean, you there are things about the first movie that obviously were made it successful enough for people to enjoy it. Uh, and you want to be aware of those, but you don't want to give them the same experience. You want to be able to give them go in a different direction and in, in, in a way top the experience without necessarily invalidating it. You know, I mean, you, 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 I, I'm sure there are some people who say that Godfather 2 is a better movie than Godfather 1, but Godfather 1 is a pretty damn good movie. And and it, it, without that without that rock to build on, you wouldn't have uh, a Godfather 2. Godfather right. 3 is an, a little more problematic for people, but because uh, sometimes you, you shouldn't do a 3. <laughs> <Sometimes> no. <laughs> just stop at 2. You got that right. Oh, two of the, well, actually, I, I want to know how your experience was of voicing two of the gremlins, the Beanie Gremlin and Wick, Wicked Witch Gremlin. Oh, I probably voiced more than those. I mean, oh, you I, did? Okay. I, so I, I, I read online, yeah. said you voiced two. No, I've done, I did a lot of gremlin noises voices and stuff but I, I we used to do that at Corman's we used to we, we, we they would call in people from the editing room and we would dub foreign import movies you know with our terrible accents and stuff and it, it's um, it's a fun thing to do you know and it's it's uh, a lot a lot of the voices for the um, the Gremlins were uh, used and then were, were recorded and then thrown out because they didn't didn't quite fit and uh and and um and then from, once you find a voice that really works you tend to want to recycle it a lot um and so sometimes it's just sound effects sometimes it's just cartoon sound effects being a huge horror fan i really admired the reference to the phantom of the opera the 1925 phantom of the opera <laughs> reference when he pulls the mask off the gremlin playing the organ which is just like lon cheney senior yeah it even goes out of focus when he comes yeah. toward the camera <laughs> <laughs> i think that's probably the would you say that that could have been the first jump scare in cinemas, perhaps? Phantom of the Opera? Yeah, that jump scare when the mask is taken uh, off and Lon Chaney's face is revealed. I'm sure it was a scare. I don't. I, jump scares. I tend. I tend to associate jump scares with movement, mm -hmm. uh, something jumping into the frame or camera panning quickly. Um, but that was. I. I think that was probably pretty horrifying because you know there was no. Uh, um, indication in the advertising or anything like that what he was going to look like they were very careful to much much as they were with charles lawton's makeup and hunchback of notre dame they didn't uh they didn't want to release pictures of it because they wanted people to see it for the first time in the film and um yeah and it's and also it's, it's one of the great makeups a hundred percent one of the most terrifying makeups of all time rambo you had the rambo reference i heard sylvester stallone approved of it well, you had to. I had to yeah. use a clip of them, and you had to approve it. Yeah. <laughs> Gremlins three. I know we've heard about this uh, plenty of times. Anywhere that's whoever's a Gremlin fan is looking for Gremlins three, or any sort of reboot. I was reading online. Chris Columbus may direct the Gremlins reboot. I was reading this. It was from an article back in 2016. Yeah, I, I think when you when you look at your Gremlins three uh, stories, they tend to be uh, a year or two old, if yeah. not older. Um, and there's always a threatened, um, uh, somebody threatens that they're going to do it, but it never happens. Uh, but what we do have is we have a, uh, a, a new Gremlins uh, animated series. That's right. Uh, Secrets of the Mogwai, which is going to be on HBO Max and uh, Cartoon Network, I, I believe, early in the year. Uh, I've, I've worked with these guys uh, on it, and it's, um, I think it's terrific. It's, it's again, it's, it's, a, it's a complete departure from the first two movies in terms of the, the tone of it, uh, but it is, it's about, uh, it's, it's a prequel um, about the Mr. Wing character when he was a kid in, in China uh, in the early, the early 1900s. Uh, and, uh, and Gizmo, of course, is, you know, the star uh, and uh, just as demanding as ever. But um, it's, I think it's turned, I've seen the first episode, it's really turned out extremely well, I think, and I think it's going to be, I think people are going to like it. But it is. But as I as I say, it, it's it's not what you expect. Something that fascinates me about you is that when you're shooting in the back lots of these studios, especially Universal Studios, you admire that 
you look and you remember that this is where Frankenstein was shot. This is where Boris Karloff was. You love looking back in film history and revisiting well, the these one, places. The one thing that's really a, a perk uh, getting to make movies during the era that I did was the back lots were still in operation and many of them were still in pretty much the same shape that they were in, in the 30s and 40s. And that there were literally places you could stand and say, this is, this is, the, this is the alley that Karloff lurked in the invisible ray, you know, and this is this, it was, it was right here. This is the, this is the archway that the, the, the characters in the Wolfman run past and, and uh, you could, and it's not just true of Universal, but you know, uh, it was true of uh, Warner Brothers where, you know, uh, the, the Warner Brothers streets are incredibly um, visible in, in movies as far back as the, the gangster pictures and the, the, the Busby Berkeley musicals. And there's a town square that uh, is um, used in The Music Man and, and, uh, and, and Bye Bye Birdie. And um, there's, there's a tremendous amount of film history on backlots. The, the, the sad thing is that they're rapidly disappearing because the vogue for backlots is um, kind of diminished with the use of going out into the real world. Uh, however, if you, I tell you, try to start stage a car crash on a real street, it's a hell of a lot easier to do on a back lot than it is to, to you know, carden off the, the real street with the onlookers and all that kind of stuff. So I think I think they served a purpose, but um, they uh, and, and there's there's still vestiges left. There's there's one called the uh, Warner Ranch right now in Burbank that uh, used to be home to the Three Stooges, and that's where they actually are doing some of the development of the animated film. But that entire area, Town Square and, and all that kind of stuff is all being raised and it's gonna be uh, turned into um, new condos and stages and things like that. And uh, I shot the first episode of Erie, Indiana there. Uh, and so it, it's, and we shot a lot of the gremlins there, the swimming pool scene, um, small soldiers we shot a lot there. Uh, it, it's, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm sorry to see these places go because they, they, I commune with them somehow when I go there, I feel like I'm, communing with the past of the this is the door that Vincent Price walked out of in the Tingler because this was the house he was in but first it was the house that Spencer Tracy lived in in the last hurrah well that's not going to be there so <laughs> <laughs> something I always love hearing about the actors and actresses that you work with is that they always rave about your knowledge of film and that you actually sit them down for some screenings of films you'll show them movies well sure I mean you know if, if you want to get them to uh, know what you're trying to do it always helps to and that goes for the crew as well uh, to just uh, get them familiar with you know where where your head is at. But um, uh, it, that's 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 less less needy now. There's some. It's so easy to show people things on uh, on, on video and uh, on tape and on streaming. But it used to be you'd have to rent a theater and run a 35 millimeter print, you know, to get people to watch stuff. How is the Hollywood Horror Museum coming about? Well, uh, I don't think I'm the right guy to ask. I, I don't know. Uh, okay. I, I know there was there was one that they were talking about that sort of went away. Uh, and um, there's an exhibit up on uh, High, uh, on the, the Highland, Highland Sunset Hollywood Complex that I believe is some sort of a horror movie exhibit, but I haven't seen it. Um, I don't I don't I don't know what the, what the deal is right now with that. I know there's a lot of props floating around. Is there going to be props that you may have collected from your sets of either the Howling Gremlins uh, contributed to this museum? Uh, I would, I would, ex I would expect so because otherwise, what are they doing in my garage? I mean, I gotta <laughs> put them somewhere. Uh, Roger Corman biopic. How is this coming along as well? Struggling, but still alive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I heard that he has a cameo in it. Well, he yeah, at the end he plays himself. Okay. We've already shot that part. Great. When do you hope to have this released? Maybe by the end of next year. In my year. lifetime. In your lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we'll be looking forward to it, though. I know that. Renfield Productions website. Was this, I'm curious, the name Renfield, was this taken from Dracula? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. We have a, a photo of Dwight Fry on our, uh, on our wall. <laughs> <laughs> Classic. And, and actually, Dwight Fry played Fritz in the original Frankenstein, too. That's right. Great always, care. Always, always pulling up his socks. <laughs> oh, what do you think makes a great horror movie in this day and age? In this day and age, well, you know they've seen everything. 
there's you know after the human centipede there's really <laughs> not a lot you can do it that's you know with grossness um i think it's usually what you don't see i think it, it, it you know if people are afraid of the dark it's because they don't know what's in it and uh, the more graphic you become um the less imagination the audience uses and then the less fear they have so that's my, my motto is less is more you brought up the human centipede what are some horror films that have impressed you lately that you've seen in the new age? Well, I didn't say that it impressed me. I just brought it up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I, you know, I, honestly, I haven't been to a theater in two years. So I, I everything I see, I see on, on streaming now. Uh, except I, last night I was in a theater to introduce The Howling, which is the first time I've been there, really. Yeah. Um, and any ones that you can think of from the streaming that you've seen recently? I liked Axel Carroll in this movie, uh, The Manor, which uh, she's a friend of mine, a trailer somehow uh, commentator. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm really not, I, I haven't, I, I saw the first Quiet Place, I didn't see the second one. Um, I'm kind of uh, behind. The new Halloween Kills just came out in theaters. <laughs> yes, I know, using a, a, an ad that's very similar to Tom Hanks coming out of the uh, burning house in the burbs. I mean, I mean to uh, call their lawyers about that. <laughs> oh, what do you feel is always your greatest contribution to horror? Because that's one of the main reasons why I wanted to bring you on the show today is to talk about your contributions. What do you feel as though that you brought to horror that no one else did? I can't think of a single thing. <laughs> it's, it's, I'm just going on a well-trod path, you know, trying to make it my own. I think you brought the shock value, especially with the howling. That's what I feel as though you brought because audiences are going and thinking one thing because of the promotion for being a slasher, but you go in, it's a werewolf movie. Yeah, well, it was, um, we, we, we tried to fool them into uh, lulling their sense of disbelief until it was too late. <laughs> <laughs> Besides the Roger Corman biopic, do you have any other upcoming work? Could we ever see a Joe Dante new horror film, perhaps, in the near future? Uh, it's not impossible, but it's um, it's more likely that if, if anything gets made, it's going to be made for streaming because uh, the uh, the theatrical market is pretty much um, blockbuster oriented, you know. Yeah. Joe Dante, is there anything else you'd love to let the audience know here today? Anything else? No, oh, I don't know. I visit my website. Trailersfromhell.com. Uh, got over almost 2,000 trailers on there with commentaries by various filmmakers and artisans and stuff. Um, and I've, I've got a podcast called The Movies That Made Me, which I do with Josh Olson. I do one, oh, wow. do one every week. And uh, that can be accessed through Trailers From Hell or Instagram or whatever you're on. But it's, um, it's, uh, it's been a lot of fun. I met a lot of people that I probably never thought I would get to talk to. So it's been... Uh, great what's been the your favorite conversation that you've had on your podcast because you've mentioned that you've talked to well, a lot I, of people i you... just had a really good one with bobcat goldthwaite and dana gould that hasn't been on yet but it's uh it was it was just hilarious it was just so much fun um and i liked uh steve van sant i liked that that was a good episode uh william friedkin that was a good episode um ron perlman i mean i just you know it's an excuse to get your friends in and talk to them about movies because it's not about their careers it's about the movies that they made them want to make movies yes you're always welcome on the show anytime you need any promo for any movies you are always have a spot here i'll keep that in mind thank you mr dante i appreciate it thank you for all that you did for horror and i hope you enjoy the rest of your october and halloween i'm looking forward okay. to all your upcoming work that you have thanks max yes enjoy the rest of your day joe bye yeah bye